listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number four two eight. Hello and welcome back once again to the Outdoor Station and this, the third and final podcast in the series recorded at the Adventure Travel Show in Olympia, uh, January 2017. In this show, I chat with well-known and much-respected Cicerone Press author Kev Reynolds, who was invited to give a talk entitled Confessions of a Travel Book Writer at the show, which I understand went down a storm. I caught him at the Cicerone press stand uh, where we discuss this and three of his latest projects. Abode of the Gods, which is currently available, Swiss Alpine Pass Routes, which is coming out in May, and the Mountain Hut Book, uh, based on the Alpine region, and advice on how best to use these huts, which is available mid-September. But first, I have an announcement to make. As regular listeners will know, we are now on iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on Internet Radio. All the links to all of these can be found over on the Outdoors Station website, of course. Now, we've been running since October 2005, and during this time... The download figures for the audio podcasts and the viewing figures for the videos have been automatically recorded. It gives me great pleasure to announce that our current download figure since we started for the audio podcast has now reached 9,089,751 downloads. So with 427 shows... In the library, this means an average download of 21,287 per episode. The YouTube video views have now reached 1,370,983. And the average view on the 83 videos in that library is 16,517. Our current YouTube subscribers total 6,315. Now, I don't really blow my own trumpet enough when it comes to figures, engagement and impact since we started. I leave that to the newer trendy social media experts who are currently filling up the space. However, I'm not aware of any independents who come close to this kind of impact. And I just want to thank everyone for staying with us as a loyal audience around the world. Nine million downloads. This is a huge milestone. So maybe you could help celebrate along with us by sharing the news on your own social media network. And it could possibly help me reach the next big one, which of course is 10 million. Links to the video with the figures or photos can be found over on the Outdoor Station, on Twitter, on Instagram, and anywhere else I can put it around. So please feel free to use it and celebrate along with us.
9 million downloads and 1 million views. So what next, I hear you ask? Well, I'm going to be increasing my audio and video output in the next few months and producing more magazine-style shows along with my traditional content. It could be product reviews, trip reports, interviews, or just general outdoor hints and tips and experience. So if you or anyone you know would like to get involved in recording or filming or interviewing, please drop me a line. You could be a budding YouTube star or a budding reporter or a camera person or someone just looking for general media experience. What I'm trying to do is build up a network of outdoor contacts around the world to call upon to add their voice to whatever the topic is we're discussing at the time. So, if you're interested, or you know anybody else that would like to get involved with this successful series, please drop me a line at our email address, which is info at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. And together, we could reach that magical 10 million download figure, 2 million views, and maybe even 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. It's a massive achievement so far, and thanks to all of you for listening and watching. At the Adventure Travel Show, it's actually really, really busy on this first day, and I've come round to the Cicerone stand, and it's really nice to see familiar faces. As uh, listeners will know, we often uh, have a chat with Cicerone and give them as much support as possible. As luck would have it, I've got one of their authors here, Kev Reynolds, and he's actually at the show to do a talk uh, on the life the life and troubles and times. Confessions of <laughs> a travel book writer. Yeah. But there's also a couple of things I want to talk to him about. So first of all about the talk itself. What are you going to what are you going to reveal? <laughs> well all the mishaps that I've had well some of the mishaps that I've had over the years. Because I mean it is it's it's been a career that happened. It was never planned at all and it's just taken me to the most amazing places. And day after day I've had to pinch myself to understand that it's actually real and this isn't a dream, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so when did you start then? Well, 1978 was when Cicerone first got in touch with me to write a guide to the Pyrenees. In those days, I was a youth hostel warden and because there was no money in it, uh, I needed to earn some money to pay for holidays. And I was going to the Pyrenees every year. It's my, it's my spiritual home, I guess. And I would be writing articles about the pyramids, about climbing there, uh, for, there were only two magazines in those days, outdoor magazines, one was Climber and the other one was High. And I did a few newspaper articles as well. And this was writing at night when our hostlers were in bed. Yeah. And then out of the blue one day, Walt Unsworth, who started Cicerone, he phoned me up, said he'd seen my stuff, said he just started this little tra uh, this guidebook company and how would I like to do a guide to the Pyrenees? I thought, who the hell wants a guidebook? <laughs> you know, I mean, my idea was to get a map if you could get one and go off into the wild places and just go exploring. Work it out for yourself. Yeah, climb if you could, if you can't. Well, as long as you didn't break your neck on the way, well, that's great, you're having a good day. But, you know, my ego was being polished. I thought, oh, yeah published author. So I came up to London, went to Stanford's, and I hoiked out one of Wainwright's guides, 
I said, oh, this is the sort of information they want, and went off and wrote it. And then when that was published, 1978, another publisher saw it, got in touch with Lighty Style, will you do us a guide to Kent? So I thought, I'd like to earn a living by doing this sort of thing. And my wife, totally crazy, she agreed and said she would support me until we earned enough money. And she's been supporting you ever since. Yeah, she's still waiting for me to earn (laughs) enough money. (laughs) Yeah, and here we are all those years later, 50-odd guidebooks, and it's just taken me all around the world. I'm wonderful. I just... I still find it hard to believe that somebody's actually paying me to do these things. Don't let the others know. Really. <laughs> yeah, it's a secret. I'm a con man, really. <laughs> well, I know it's coincidence to have it. You've just dropped off your latest draft to uh, Leslie here. Draft? Yeah. Um, no, it's a complete. Oh, it's completed. It's completed. Is oh, it? oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't let us see a draft. <laughs> 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 They'd cancel the contract immediately. <laughs> now that sounds really interesting because obviously it's, it's outs orientated again, but it's about the huts. It is the mountain huts. I, I led walking holidays in the Alps for a number of years as a sort of a sideline, and I would always take my groups up to Mountain Nuts where I could, and they, they loved it. They always thought this was fantastic, but a lot of them, a lot of the people I would take, they didn't have the confidence to go to huts to stay on their own. They felt it was a little bit uh, of a sort of, there's a mystique about it. They were quite happy to assign themselves into a three or four star hotel, but a mountain hut was something different. So just to, to describe what their, those huts would have been at that time, is it like a bothy? Was it you know, like a no, no, Scottish no, bothy or an, no, no, a, in somebody the outs, there? No, no, in the Alps, uh, since, since about 19, late 60s, early 70s, the mountain huts in the Alps have turned out to be quite nice, comfortable place, or reasonably comfortable. You're still sleeping in dormitories, but you'll have a guardian there who's providing meals for you, which is lovely. Um, they're more than just a port in a storm. They're a place where you can meet up with like-minded people, share experiences, get information, up-to-date information about the trail ahead or the routes you want to climb, and that sort of thing. And they're really, really lovely. And so, so what was people's concern in those days? Well, I suppose it's still the same now. A lot of people may be concerned about staying in a hut. What, 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 how did it manifest itself? Well, just by people saying, this, this is lovely. I said, well, you, you ought to come out here, bring your wife and family or whatever, and, and, and spend a few nights in a... Well, no, I don't think I could do that. They felt that it was... The mountain huts were the preserve of the experienced climber walker, whatever, you know? And a lot of the people who I would be taking on these mountain walking holidays are not like that. They like to stay in a nice hotel in the valley and go on walks for four or five hours in the day and then go back and spend the night in a comfortable bed and, you know, with a good drink or two. You can get a nice drink or two up in the mountain house as well. Get a bottle of wine up there, you know, your beers and all this sort of thing. Uh, it was. It's just that it's... They seem to be so different from hotels. But it's that difference that I think it makes them so special. Yeah, absolutely. So the content of your book, then, is it a, describing them as a, an accommodation, from an accommodation point of view, or is it describing a history of each particular one? Or it starts with, it's, uh, I think, it's seven chapters. Mm-hmm. The first chapter is describing what the huts are, where they are, and you know, there, are, there are so many variations, and there are so many of them, if you've got enough time, money and energy, you could walk all the way across the Alps, from the Alps Maritime, just above Nice, 
all the way around to the Julians of Slovenia and stay in a different hut every night. Oh. Now, one night you might be staying in a place which seems just like a, a mountain inn, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, with terrific showers and all sorts of things in your washroom. Some have even got ensuite facilities. Oh. Amazing. The next night, you might be in a little sort of bivy box, really, with just six basic bunk beds and you've got to do your own cooking, but you've got a million dollar view. Mm. The next one, it might be a converted dairy farm where you've got 20 mattresses either side of this sort of trench, if you like, where the cows used to go for milking. Mm. I mean, atmosphere. Wonderful. Yeah, fantastic. So but, each one's different. But what do I, isn't there a booking system for these things? I mean, surely you just can't just go on a whim. Well, this year has been, sorry, 2016 has been the first year that I have ever booked all the accommodation in advance. This is in, on the Tour de Mont Blanc. Because huts are now becoming so, so busy, in, particularly in the, in, the, in the popular areas. I mean, the Mont Blanc range, obviously, is the most popular place. And it's just as well I did, because the TMB was ever so popular in September last year. And there were people who were being turned away. There was nowhere for them to stay. They were doing two or three stages in one, trying to find somewhere to stay, because they hadn't booked. Right. It's not like that everywhere. Well, I suppose that's probably now, that's, that's the new concern. So the old concern may have been staying in the huts, and now it's actually, can I definitely get a bed there? Because if you're, you are doing the hiking and you're thinking, well, there is a hut that way, I'll, I'll try it, yeah. you're, you're at the whim of uh, circumstances. Yeah, yeah, and of course it does depend on what time of the year you go. And all course, yeah. Yeah. But I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't want to put anybody off, just, just give them a warning that if you're going sort of in-season to one of the popular areas, do book in advance. Or you go to your first hut, and then get a guardian to phone the next one along the trail to book you for the next night. And they'll uh, do that for you. Uh, OK, that's good. Well, I know that, um, talking to Leslie there, it looks like September uh, yeah. 2017, before yeah. that book comes out. So obviously it's an ideal Christmas present for people considering their holidays for 2018. So that's worth talking about. Now, um, again, still in the Alps, uh, let's just have a look at the, uh, the other book here you've got, which is the Swiss Alpine Pass Route, yeah. Via Alpina Route Number 1. Just tell me a bit about that. The Swiss Alpine Pass route is a fabulous route which cuts right across Switzerland from east to west. It starts at a place called Sargons, which is just outside Liechtenstein, and it goes westward right across the mountains over the Bernese Alps and everything, and finishes up at Montreux on the Lake of Geneva. Right? So you're making a traverse of the whole country, crossing 16 passes. Oh. Yeah, it's a fabulous route. You can you could just do it in two weeks if you're fit and young. Okay. I'm neither fit nor young these days. So I, I've left it to Jonathan and Leslie to do the hard stuff this year. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful route. Now the Via Alpina, there are now, I think there are seven Via Alpinas. These are long distance routes devised to link up the different countries in the Alpine regions. And Via Alpina 1 starts right up on the Liechtenstein uh, Austria border, comes down through Liechtenstein and then picks up the traditional Swiss Alpine pass route at Sargans and follows it more or less all the way to uh, Gstaad and then it veers away and, and makes its own route to Montreux from that, whereas the, the Alpine pass route does its old traditional route there. So the, the, there are variations at both ends. So this book, our, our new guide to that route, 
incorporates these these changes, these differences. And I think it's going to be a cracking book. It's it's, it's, it's a fabulous route. I mean, I've, I've walked it so many times over the years and just love it. Is it... Forgive me for asking, because I'm not experienced in that sort of area, but is it always just walkers or would, would mountain bikers do that as well? Are any of these routes open to mountain bikers? No, mountain bikers wouldn't get on in, uh, on the Alpine Pass route. There's large sections there which would just not be feasible okay. on a bike. And the other question is, um, do you recommend people using huts all the time or is wild camping permitted? Because I know there's a lot of question marks over that. Yeah, wild camping is officially um, prohibited in Switzerland. But having said that, I, I have I've taken my tent out there and done the whole route, camping most nights. But I've always asked permission. I even went to a little hamlet one day and I couldn't find anywhere to pitch the tent. And I, I hadn't got the energy to go much further. And there was a, a, a guest house, guest hall. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll splash out and spend the night in a bed. So I went into the guest hall. And I spoke to the receptionist there and I said, I've been looking for somewhere to camp. Obviously, there's nowhere. Um, what's your cheapest room here? And the woman said, hold it a minute. I'll just go and have a word with the boss. She came back a few moments later and she said, I'll show you where you can put your tent. And she took me out into her garden, the what? garden of this gas dock, where I stuck my tent up amongst these apple trees. And she said... If you want to do your own cooking, that's fine. If you want to come in and have a meal, that's fine. She said, we don't ask anything of that. Just just tidy up after you. Good grief. So I thought, that's pretty good. How long ago was that? That's probably 15 years ago. Okay. But, you know, um, if you approach people in the right <laughs> way, okay. you know, I didn't, I didn't ask her for somewhere to pitch the tent. Is um, for people who would love to do something like this and perhaps not strong on their French or German or in other international oh, languages? Me neither. Well, I mean, how, how can somebody manage who can't speak any other language? Is it possible? Listen, I speak neither French, a little bit of German, no Spanish, Italian or anything, and it has never held me back. All you need to do is just go at it with a smile and be prepared to make a fool of yourself. A lot of yeah, hand-waving. Hand yeah, you might like hand-waving, do a bit of um, pantomime yeah. or whatever. Oh, you can get by. Um, I've never had any... I've even got around Russia without any problems. That's good, great. Yeah. Well, see, that's, that's, that's the type of reassuring information I think people want to hear. The other uh, thing is... Accommodation on the Alpine Pass, there aren't many huts, not right. mountain huts, but there are lots of places with dormitories. You can go into a little village, and most of the time we're in little villages, not the big fancy resorts, we're going into little villages. And you'll see there's a hotel there. Now, the hotel will not advertise that they have dormitory accommodation. You just go into them and say, do you have a dormitory room at all, matrats and lager? And nine times out of ten, they do. And you, so you go and you, you sleep in a dormitory, so your, your overnight expenses are way, way down. You can eat with the rest of the guests in the place. It's fine. So, so just given, I mean, obviously it's 2017, everybody's concerned about the pound now, and they're all, uh, you know, a lot of comments I've had, especially coming to the show, with people saying, you know, find out something you can do that's affordable. For something like that in its current situation at the moment, could you possibly put a price on what it would be to walk that in two or three weeks and use a bit of accommodation and a bit of, uh, a bit of camping? I would say somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds, <laughs> depending on what you're prepared to put up with. Me, I'm perfectly happy 
to sleep in a dormitory, and there are so many of them available in Switzerland, although often they're not advertised at all. If you're going to stay in a twin-bedded room or something, then you're going to pay accordingly. So, your food, your meals are going to be the same price no matter what you're sleeping on. I presume, though, that you can still buy food from shops and cook your own meals? No. Well, something. no, there's nowhere to cook. Oh, really? No. OK. No. So, so you're into buying meals. Right. Yeah. right. So I would say between 50 and 100, depending on what standard of accommodation you want. Lovely. Well, if you want more information about that book, that's coming out in May. So look out for that one from Cicerone. The home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for outdoors people everywhere. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions, why not drop us a line, either on Facebook or directly to our email address, info at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. The final uh, book that I wanted to talk to Kev about was a, a, a little aside, really, almost, but still coming under the Cicerone banner, which is uh, a review of his time in Nepal uh, called Abode of the Gods, which is now available, isn't it? It's available yep, now. Yes. Yeah? Yep. So, so how does this differ? Is this a guidebook? No, totally different from that. It is a series of personal experiences of trekking in eight different regions of Nepal. I've been very blessed over the years to have made... Uh, oh, I don't know how many, certainly well over 20 trekking expeditions in Nepal. I've done them solo, I've done them with a friend staying in the tea houses, I've done them with just a, a guide, uh, sorry, a Sherpa friend. I've led groups and I've been a member of a group, things like that. So I've, I've got a fairly broad range of experience there. And after my lectures, often people, particularly about the Himalaya, people come up and ask me, about you know, how do you cope with this? You know, what, how do you cope with the altitude? Um, how do you get on with the local people? What about the little villages? All that sort of thing. And I figured that the best way to answer these questions is to give them my experiences of trekking. Those experiences will be shared by, I think, an awful lot of people who go off to Nepal, but also each individual's experiences will be different. So I start off in the far east of Nepal, in Kanchenjunga, and then I work westwards. We go up to Everest, we go to uh, Langtang, Annapurna, Manaslu, and so forth, all the way to the very farthest west, right to the Indian border, where I was on a, an exploration with a Sherpa friend and just five lads as porters. That was the toughest trip I've ever made anywhere in the world. It was the most exciting and it had the most damaging effect on my health. We were getting very short of food. We actually ran out of food and we went two days without any at all but this is just before we actually ran out. We turned up in a tiny little village miles and miles and miles from anywhere and as we approached it you knew that this was an unhealthy place. And I knew that TB was rife in some of these remote villages. At the time, of course. Yeah, well, even now. Oh, really? Yeah, in, okay. in these remote places. You see, they live in smoky atmospheres. Mm. They don't have chimneys to their houses. They have fires in the middle of the rooms, and the rooms are filled with smoke. If you're breathing this in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's going to have a damaging effect on your lungs. Mm. TB is bred in this, and with all the coughs and colds that go around unhealthy lifestyles 
Anyway, uh, they were very hospitable and provided us with a load of potatoes, which they boiled up for us, and some eggs, which they also boiled up. And we sat there in the middle of the village square with all the villagers around us. So we're eating these potatoes and eggs while the villagers are coughing and sneezing all over us. And because they'd never seen a European before, their hands were all over my face and my hair. You know, they'd never seen anybody with white hair and a beard before, you know? And, um, and say, coughing and sneezing. Three days later, I was running a fever. And that was one hell of a fever. And it was another six weeks before I could get any medical help. By which time, it had really set in and I was treated for a very bad chest infection given antibiotics and that, which didn't do a lot of good. Six months later I was back in Nepal leading a group and God I did struggle then. I just didn't seem to have any power in my lungs and I, once again I got what I assumed was another nasty chest infection and the following year it was the same and every year I would be going back there. There's these whole series of chest infections would come on, even in the Alps, the Pyrenees, chest infections, as soon as I was away. And each time the medics over here would treat me with various antibiotics. Until about four years ago, I was up in Manchester giving a lecture and I collapsed at the end of it. And I was taken off to hospital and all sorts of tests were made and they discovered that I'd got TB. And I've been carrying this TB for 16 years since Gosh. that tiny little village. Were you, just as an aside, were you contagious? Could you spread no, it? No, apparently not. Some TBs, it seems odd because I obviously caught TB from yeah. these people in the village. Yeah. But perhaps by the time they discovered it with me, it was no longer, I was no longer contagious, I don't know. But they said, you know, you, you haven't got to worry about spreading it to anyone, but just don't cough over anybody, you know. Um, anyway, with... A lot of they slammed me with all sorts of treatment and steroids and all sorts of things, and finally blasted it out of my system. But the damage is done. So now I find anything going uphill is or can be a bit of a struggle. It doesn't stop me going to the mountains, of course. I just go very slowly, yeah. <laughs> and I don't mind. Enjoy that. the view. Yeah, Enjoy absolutely. So, so that particular book then um, has got full of stories like this, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and the profits from that, I understand, are going to charity. That's right. It was about to go off to the printers when we heard about the um, earthquakes at Nepal. So we thought, right, hold tight with this book. We might not even publish it. And we sat on it for a little while, and then we decided, actually, it's a good one to publish because it tells you about the people and the villages, some of the villages which will no longer exist. So it's also a record of how Nepal was before the earthquakes and we could do something positive. So Jonathan and Leslie decided they would give all their profits from the book to Community Action Nepal. It's a Doug Scott run charity, and I would do the same. So we make not a halfpenny out of it. And I don't know what um, Jonathan and Leslie's contribution has been to them, but I, I've also done various little fundraising efforts around places I go to and the lectures and things. And also, if I'll raise £24,000. That's great. Congratulations. So it's not all from that book, but that's had a hell of a lot of impact. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm rather pleased about that. I mean, it's a, a, a drop in the ocean when you consider the amount of people whose lives were devastated by it. But it's, every little bit helps, as they say. 
My thanks to Kev Reynolds and Cicerone Press for taking the time to chat. Abode of the Gods is available now, and of course, all monies go to an excellent cause. The Swiss Alpine Pass Routes will be available in May, in time for your summer holidays, and the Mountain Hut book will be released in September, in time for Christmas. All links, of course, are over on the Outdoor Station website. Thanks once again, everyone, for helping me reach the 9 million download figure. Let's see if I can reach 10 million by Christmas 2017. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Listener.